Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we prepare to come to the table, we want to look to God's Word this morning, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. For months now, we have been soaking in Jesus' teaching, in Jesus' compassion, in Jesus' demonstration that He is the Christ, the Son of God, in Jesus' invitation to us to follow Him. We're entering chapter 14 today, and as we do so, there is a certain feeling of, of inertia, sort of like a, a, a river as it's approaching a waterfall of increasing force and energy as we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can almost feel the, the quickening of the pace toward the cross in Jesus' words and actions throughout this chapter. Now, uh, we're starting chapter 14 here, but if you're astute, you'll notice that the verses I've indicated in the bulletin aren't the first verses of chapter 14. And the reason is I made the decision to flop and preach this passage on the institution of the Lord's Supper on the Sunday when we were coming to the table together, and I'll go back and cover the first verses of chapter 14 next week. But we're going to begin reading Mark chapter 14, verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 26. This is God's Word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Father, would you use your word this morning to encourage our hearts and draw us to Christ? We pray it for his sake. Amen. 
About two weeks ago, the story broke of the arrest of five thieves in Germany who had carried out one of the most uh, remarkable heists in recent memory. They had stolen over $100 million of historic precious gems from a vault in Dresden, Germany. Now it turns out that these five had been planning the details of this height for months. They arranged and repainted their getaway car. They figured out how to start a fire a block away to knock out power in the building. They'd mapped out the, the area. They had cut the bars to the windows several nights before so they'd be ready. They found out that the guards' protocol, the guards were unarmed and they had been told not to confront any potential thieves. I'm not sure what good a security guard does in that situation, but they knew that was the protocol. So they had all the details figured out and they they carried out the heist. Now there were a few hiccups despite their months of planning. They figured out how to cut through metal bars and they figured out how to axe their way into the protective cases, but they didn't realize that there was some thread there. Some pieces had been sewn onto the cases and they couldn't get them out, so they left those. And then there was the matter of their DNA. They left their DNA at the crime scene, which led to their arrest, which only goes to show that no matter how many months you spend planning, even the most detailed planning still doesn't always go the way we expect it to. And that only highlights the absolute sovereignty of God and the control that Jesus maintains over life in all of its details as he carries out his Father's plan to perfection. That's on display of every paragraph of our passage here this morning. We see from the details of the Passover itself in Jerusalem on that Thursday night, to the fulfillment of the Scriptures across the centuries, to the accomplishment of all of God's purposes through history. Jesus demonstrates a purposeful, sovereign control over all these things to perfectly fulfill God's plan of salvation. And I want to look at how Jesus carries out each of these aspects of God's plan and what his words and actions mean for us as we come to this table this morning. So let's begin in verses 12 through 16 with the details of this Passover feast on that Thursday of Holy Week. As we've seen the past two chapters, all of Israel has descended on Jerusalem. They are there to keep the feast, which in many ways was the high point of the Jewish calendar. Now think back to Exodus for a moment, and we can maybe get our minds in the same place that Jesus and his disciples would have been on that Thursday night. On the Passover feast, a child asks the question, why is this night different than any other night? And in response to that question, the father or the presiding head of the feast would recount God's deliverance after 430 years in the land of Egypt, after 430 years away from the land that God had promised to his people, after suffering in slavery under Pharaoh, after crying out and groaning under their burdens, God came and acted with a strong hand to rescue Israel from slavery and to covenant with his people to make them his. And as part of that rescue, the Lord had commanded each family to take a lamb on the 14th day of the month of Nisan and to kill it at twilight and to eat that lamb together with unleavened bread and and bitter herbs 
with their belts fastened and their sandals on their feet, ready for the Lord's salvation. But they were also to take some of the blood of that Passover lamb. And they were to, to paint the blood on the doorposts of their house. Because that night, their salvation was going to be accomplished when the Lord passed through the land of Egypt with the angel of death who would strike the firstborn of every house in Egypt. But the Lord promised that wherever He saw the blood of the Lamb, He would pass over that house and spare them from death. And that very night, the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And after that great salvation, the Lord had commanded Israel throughout all their generations each year to kill a spotless lamb without blemish and to eat unleavened bread, remembering that by a strong hand, the Lord passed over them and brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this feast each year, was above all an opportunity to think back and remember what the Lord had done. But we learn from the Jewish Mishnah that as part of their feast, they would also sing Psalms 113 through Psalms 118. And while these first Psalms would look back and recount who is like the Lord our God, faithful and steadfast love, as they got to the end of the feast and they sang Psalm 118, That psalm began to look ahead to the future. It proclaimed that someday the stone that the builders would reject would become the chief cornerstone. And that one day blessed would be he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the feast looked back at God's redemption through the shed blood of a spotless lamb, but it also looked forward to another redemption that the Lord had promised his people. And so all of that would be in Jesus' mind and the disciples' mind as they came to share this feast on that Thursday night. And Mark describes how completely Jesus was in control of every single detail. The disciples ask, well, where should we have this Passover feast? You can imagine, of course, with the hundreds of thousands of Israelites coming to Jerusalem, it was an expectation that pretty much every resident of the city would make available their guest rooms or extra rooms for for people to celebrate the feast. And it seems like Jesus has made an arrangement with a particular man to use his guest room. But his directions to his disciples for how to find that man and that room, again, demonstrate his foreknowledge and sovereignty. Because he says, well, go into the city, and when you go into the city, you'll see a man with a water jug, and if you just follow that man with the water jug, he'll enter the right house, and that's the right house, and, and ask that master uh, whether where to prepare the feast. And Mark brings it home by saying, and the disciples found it just as he had told them. See, when it came to the details of that feast, everything went exactly according to Jesus' plan and his sovereignty. But Jesus' plan was not limited to where they would have the Passover that night. We want to look down then to verses 17 to 25, and there it becomes clear that Jesus had a specific purpose for this meal as he would fulfill the Scriptures exactly according to God's plan. I think it's worth remembering that this feast was kept by the Israelites every single year. It meant that as a child, you would grow up keeping this feast. And then as you grew up, you would continue to do it year by year so that you would know its rhythms. You would know what came next and what words would be said. Maybe it's a little bit like 
the way we kind of know our routines or our traditions around Christmas. Maybe you say, well, when Christmas comes, I know what to expect. We'll, we'll eat a light dinner together, and then we'll go to the Christmas Eve service. And then we'll come home and we'll eat the same cheeses and the same crackers and the same Christmas cookies that we eat every year. And then Dad will read from Luke chapter 2, and we'll go to bed, and then the next morning we'll have the same cinnamon rolls my mom makes. We know the routine, right? And as we grow up, our expectation of what's going to happen shapes it. And if something different happens, it, it startles us. It stands out. I don't think it would have been even more so the case here for the celebrating of the Passover. There would have been a familiarity to the routine and the rhythm and what was said, which would have made it all the more surprising when they're reclining at table and eating together and Jesus looks up and says, truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Each gospel tells us that all of the disciples responded with with shock and with horror and with grief at that news. Jesus says, someone here is going to betray me. In fact, it's one of the 12 that's going to betray me. And I can imagine if the disciples were like me, uh, if I was one of the disciples, I'd be looking around the room and thinking, well, which one of them is going to do it? I can't believe they're going to do that. Of course, while it's clear that Jesus is specifically talking about Judas here, Before this chapter is out, we're going to read how every single one of the twelve fled and abandoned Jesus at his arrest, and another one of the twelve would deny him three times. So in a very real sense, each of the disciples is going to betray Jesus and their friendship with him before this chapter is over. But notice in verse 21 what Jesus says. He says this betrayal, this death that's going to happen to the Son of Man is exactly what was written about him in the scriptures. In other words, even in the moment of betrayal and death, everything was going exactly according to God's plan. I think of how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Let's just think about how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures here. Even in this betrayal that he announces, you might think of Psalm 41 verse 9, which says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so here is Jesus fulfilling that verse as he says, the one who dips the bread in the dish with me will betray me. Or maybe you think of Psalm 22 the one scorned by men and despised by the people, poured out like water and laid in the dust of death and pierced in the hands and feet. Or maybe you think of Isaiah 53, the one despised and rejected by men who was pierced for our transgressions, who healed us by his wounds. Jesus is fulfilling what was written of him centuries before. So Jesus wasn't just a guy with good administrative gifts who was able to arrange the Passover really well. No, Jesus is the Son of God who is intentionally, specifically completing His Father's plan laid down from eternity past, foretold in the Scriptures, and fulfilled in every detail. But why? Why was it God's plan that His Son would die? Well, it's because his people were again in bondage. This time they were under slavery to sin. And his people had no more hope of escaping their slavery to sin than Israel had of overthrowing Pharaoh at the height of Egypt's power. And their sin meant that 
the judgment of the angel of death would justly fall on them this time. That they deserved the judgment of the angel of death. And there was no escape. Unless, unless the Lord would again provide the blood of a lamb. Unless the Lord would again look on the blood of a Passover lamb and pass over their sins. Unless the Lord again would act by the power of His right hand to redeem them. And Jesus in His perfect plan uses this Passover feast to announce that that is exactly what the Lord is going to do. Again, in verse 22, Jesus breaks the traditional rhythm of the feast. Having broken the bread and distributed it, he then declared, this is my body. Take it and eat it. And when he poured the cup and distributed it and they drank together, he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And suddenly we learn that this is not just another Passover And we learn that Jesus didn't just fulfill a particular verse here or a particular verse there. No, the entire Passover itself was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling the whole feast that the Lord had provided. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And in doing so, Jesus secured eternal redemption As Hebrews 9, 12 puts it, Jesus did not come with the blood of bulls and of goats, but by means of his own blood, he secured eternal redemption. And so do you begin to see how Jesus, when it came to this feast, was intentionally holding this Passover to fulfill the scriptures and to fulfill the feast itself as everything was going exactly according to God's plan? Now, before we leave these verses, I want to comment briefly on this phrase that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And I think to understand that, we should just remember the context and the situation. Jesus is sitting in front of his disciples in the flesh, holding up a piece of bread saying, this is my body. Now, no one would have thought, oh, well, he must mean his body is sort of molecularly expanding into that piece of bread. No, they can see his flesh. They know it's right in front of them. So when he holds it up and says, this is my body, they would know he was saying, this represents my body. I was thinking of maybe a a funny analogy this week. If I were to uh, bring our pet goldfish here and set the goldfish bowl up here and, and introduce you to our goldfish, Chad, Uh, And then I would take a little goldfish cracker and say, here is our goldfish Chad. Well, you wouldn't assume that that's our goldfish itself. You can see our goldfish Chad right here. You would all know. I was saying this must represent Chad. I'm about to give you an analogy or an example that has to do with our goldfish. And maybe it's it's something similarly here as Jesus does not literally say, this is my literal physical flesh. He's saying, I'm instituting a new feast, and this bread represents my body, and this cup represents my blood, which is being poured out for many. So do this. Repeat this feast in remembrance of me. So here is Jesus. He's brought about the details of the feast perfectly. He has fulfilled Scripture in this feast perfectly. But lastly, will you just notice verse 25 and see how Jesus here was also anticipating the final completion of God's plans in the coming kingdom of God? 
Jesus, even as he fulfills the scriptures and institutes this new feast for us, he looks ahead to the future completion of God's plans and says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And there Jesus anticipates and promises that he's in control of the future and the kingdom will be fulfilled and he will drink of this again with his people anew in that kingdom. I think that's exactly why Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, about continuing to keep the Lord's Supper, said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Because even in keeping this feast, we're not just looking back at what Christ has done for us, we're looking ahead also, remembering the promise He made that He will drink again with us in the kingdom and keeping this promise until He comes again. So step back for a minute and just consider the grand beauty and glory and the amazing grace of our God and His plan of redemption. From redeeming Israel from Egypt to offering His own Son as our spotless Lamb, passing over our sins and securing redemption all the way to the final consummation of His plans when we will feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of this came into focus in this first supper, this last supper that Jesus held with his disciples, fulfilling God's plans just as it was written for the salvation of his people. Well, we're coming to this table today. We're coming to this table that Christ instituted. And so as we do, I just want to ask us two questions to help us consider what we are about to do as we come to the table. The first question I want to ask is this. What happens when we have this meal together? What's going on when we come around this table? Well, of course, to begin, we eat a little piece of bread and we we drink from the cup. And these are physical elements of food and drink that we taste and chew. They are tangible pictures and signs to us that represent Christ's body and blood. And so at the the ground level, this meal that brings us together to remember Christ and what he's done for us and to assure us that it is true. John Calvin put it this way. He said, pious souls can derive great confidence and delight from this sacrament as being a testimony that everything which is his, they may call their own. We can confidently assure ourselves that eternal life of which he himself is the heir, is ours. And that the kingdom of heaven into which he has entered can no more be taken from us than it can be from him. While on the flip side, that we cannot be condemned for our sins, seeing that he has been pleased that they should be imputed to himself as if they were his own. And Calvin says, to all these things we have a complete attestation in the sacrament as truly exhibited to us as if Christ were placed in bodily presence in front of our view and handled by our touch. But this meal offers more than just any assurance of what Christ has done. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, by faith, we actually commune with Christ. We are nourished by his life and by his presence with us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation 
in the blood of Christ. And the bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Maybe it sounds a bit weird, that word participation there, but the Greek word is the word for fellowship or to commune. What he's saying is that in this cup of blessing and in this bread, we fellowship with Christ. We commune with Christ. He is spiritually present with us when we come to this table by faith. And so when we eat this bread and this cup, Christ is at table with us strengthening us and nourishing us by his undeserved abundant kindness, drawing near to us as the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What a blessing. And if that's what this table is, well, let me ask finally, how should we respond as we draw near to this table? Well, certainly with humility, the son of God himself offered his body and blood and poured them out for me a sinner. In what world of justice is that right that the Son of God should shed his blood for me, a sinner? And yet that is what the triune God had determined to do out of his great mercy and his steadfast love. And the magnitude of what he has done for us is right before our eyes and in our hands as we come to the table. And that ought to humble us even as it exalts the glory of God. And of course, considering the magnitude of what he has done should also lead us to deep gratitude. Just think about it. The greater the gift that is given to us, the greater our thanks for the gift. And the greater our need, the greater our thanks when someone gives us a gift to meet that need. And yet when we come to this table, we're immediately reminded that this the body and blood of our own Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the greatest possible gift given to meet the greatest and most dire need we could have. For we stood under judgment and death. And so if we've been given the greatest gift to meet our greatest need, we should have a great thanks and gratitude when we come to this table. So humility, gratitude. But if at this table, Christ welcomes us into fellowship and communion with him in faith, well, then we should also respond with great joy. God welcomes us into his presence at this table. The Son of God is welcoming us to fellowship with him, saying, take, eat, take, drink, come to table with me and feed on me in faith. You know that picture of a a young girl, maybe a a four or five-year-old girl, when her father opens his arms and grabs her and welcomes her onto his lap. And you can sort of see written on her whole face the joy and the the giggles of delight being welcomed into her father's embrace. Maybe that's a little picture of the joy that we ought to feel when our father summons us and says, come through faith in Jesus Christ, fellowship here, commune, and we rejoice and delight in that fellowship. And finally, of course, this meal should cause a deep sense of anticipation to well up within us. Because Jesus said he would not eat of the vine again in person with us until he drunk it new in the kingdom of God. Paul said we're to eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. And so every time we participate in this meal, it ought to peak our anticipation again for his kingdom, which is coming. Humility, deep gratitude, joy, and anticipation. 
That's how we should respond as we come to the table. So may we be strengthened this morning by such a Savior and such a promise as we gather in His presence at the table. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for what You've done for us through Jesus Christ. And how we thank You for Your wisdom and grace which would give us this table to eat and drink together, to be reminded and assured of what we have in Christ Jesus and to fellowship together with you. Oh, would you use it to nourish us in your presence this morning by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.